This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we're looking at Zelensky's possible path to peace, Turkey's resistance to NATO expansion, and the attempted resurgence of the Great British Bulls Club. First up, we're joined by James Forsyth and Alexander Clarkson, a lecturer in German and European studies at King's College London. We're going to be talking about the many different borders Ukraine could draw to end the war. James, in the magazine this week, you ask what the end game should be in negotiations with Putin. How is Europe preparing for the negotiation table? So, I think there is a sense that with the amount of aid that is flowing into Ukraine, I mean, the US have promised 40 billion of aid. That That is more than the entire defence budget of Australia. That Ukraine has moved from a situation of trying to halt and slow down the Russian advance to the possibility of trying to retake territory. And so I think the question then becomes, you know, what should the end game be? And I think the kind of the, the, the kind of current view is, you know, to send Zelensky into the negotiating chamber in the strongest possible position. I mean, there are two components to that in, in, in the British view. One is maintaining and increasing the sanctions pressure on Russia. And secondly, providing Ukraine with the kind of military equipment that can change the facts on the ground. I don't think there is any chance of Putin coming to the negotiating table as long as he has this land corridor from the Crimea to the Donbass. You need to kind of unravel some of Putin's military gains, I think, before he would be prepared to talk. I also think, though, that you are beginning to see some uh, for the first time, really, some tensions in the Western approach. You saw this week that a way has been found to allow European companies to effectively pay for Russian ruble for, for, for their gas in Russian rubles, something that the Commission initially suggested would be against the sanctions regime. And then you've got Emmanuel Macron saying that, you know, look, Putin shouldn't be humiliated in any negotiation. And, and so I think we can begin to see some, not massive, but some subtle differences in the Western alliance about what should happen. It, because if you contrast Macron's tone to the Estonian argument, that you know, Putin must lose and be seen to have lost. Dr. Clarkson, James raises two questions in his piece. What should Ukraine's war aims be? And should Putin be offered some kind of face-saving exit? What, what would you say to both of those? Well, I think, first of all, the Ukrainians are going to push their their war aims as far as possible. But we also need to appreciate the fact that, I mean, they're not dipsticks. I mean, they, they, they perfectly well understand that they're dealing with a complex Western alliance. Kuleba and the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as well as a large part of the political elite, have a perfectly clear understanding of where the different EU states are. You could even see that in Zelensky's speeches to each European parliament, which he pitched brilliantly towards each specific audience, be it Czech, be it Polish, be it Ukrainian, or be it German. So they're going to be pretty, you know, aggressive in their warnings, but they're also pretty realistic that if Putin makes a serious negotiation offer, and it has to be serious, it has to be one that involves withdrawal, then, you know, Zelensky has also sort of hedged every statement where he's, as they're becoming more expansive with their war aims. And Kuleba, for example, also to his interview with the Financial Times has clearly said, look, if the Russians come up with us in negotiations, we will also negotiate. So... I mean, the Ukrainians are both being quite bullish, but they're also quite, also realistic. It's worth keeping in mind that the Russians still control substantial parts of Ukrainian territory, even after the withdrawal from around Kiev, Sumy, and Chernihiv. 
I think if we look at the wider European process, we need to have a little bit of historical memory here. And the, the West was, throughout the Cold War, for example, always had different nuances. The French had a different language. They weren't part of NATO's military apparatus after 1964, for example. And they only returned to that under Sarkozy. The Germans, West Germans, had particular nuances. But actually, if we look at the set of core issues, we can actually narrow down to where some of the problems in the European response lie. If we take the Italians, for example, they're really, really doing really a lot of good work. I think one of the problems with a lot of UK rhetoric is, in order to puff up the British position, there tends to be a diminishing of some of the contributions, say, surprising contributions some states like Italians have made, as much out of self-interest as anything else, or, or, the, or various Eastern European states, or various other partners. But if you narrow it down, the core problem in the EU response really is in Germany. And it's in within within Germany, it's within the Social Democratic Party, within the SPD, which is the biggest party in the coalition. There is a lot of conflict, a lot of struggle within the SPD to turn away from the failures of the past. And it's actually a big problem within the German government between the Greens, who are very hawkish, uh, because of the long-standing political traditions and hostility to the Putin regime going within the green political tradition. The FDP is a very Atlanticist, they're very pro-American, and the SPD acting as a break. If we look at the French position, there is a point where, you know, the French have always been a little bit more reluctant about openly challenging the Russians. They are providing the Ukrainians with a lot of military support, less than the Italians. There's an interesting difference there between EU med states, which I think requires a lot more research, I think, from uh, journalists in the UK. But the French point about not humiliating Russia isn't entirely wrong, right? Because there is Putin and there is Russia. I think you can, the Estonian leadership and the French leadership can be both right at the same time. The Estonian leadership says we, Putin needs to be seen to, to lose and lose badly. And I think there's a very strong case for that. I would agree with that. But there will be a Russia after Putin. You know, when Putin goes away, Russia doesn't go away. Or, you know, even if Russia collapses, which is less, is, is unlikely, but less unlikely than it was maybe three months ago, there will still be successor states that we have to deal with. Do we want Russia to, to collapse? And I think there is an interesting question that Macron raises about what are our end goals with Russia? Where do we want to go with Russia? Where do we want Russia to be? We kind of now know, after a lot of disasters and mistakes, of where we want Ukraine to be. And also the British need to remember the Ukrainians want to integrate with the EU. That's where Ukraine wants to be. But the British, the Europeans, the Americans, the Canadians, the Japanese, we need to develop a clearer idea of where we want Russia to go. What is our ideal state for Russia? And I think Macron raising that question is raising a, a, a legitimate question about what our policy should be. I would argue, and I think I would say the French have a point, that we don't want Russia to collapse, right? Because we don't want Russia to be too strong, but we don't want it to be too weak. And that's a serious problem that the British, I think, haven't really faced up to. I, I don't think there is anyone in, in, in the UK government who wants Russia to collapse. That would obviously cause a whole series of other problems. And so I think, I think there's no desire for that. I think there is a broader question, which is, where do you want Russia to be, uh, as Dr. Carlson says, in, in the years to come? And I think the, the UK government view is kind of shared by, it's actually summed up by the US Defence Secretary when he said, look, we, we want them to not be able to do this kind of thing in future. And I think that is going to create some tensions about what should happen to sanctions at the end of this conflict. I think the UK government view is, look, you know, some of these sanctions have clearly had a hugely deleterious effect on the Russian defence industry. You know, do you really want to enable the Russian defence industry to go back to where it was before this war? So I think you would see the US and the UK. You know, first of all, the, the US has a, has, has, a, has a tendency to impose sanctions on countries and then forget to ever remove them. But I think that the UK view would be to kind of keep 
some of those sanctions in place on Russia, which which limit Russia's ability to do advanced manufacturing and the like, because that would prevent Russia from kind of uh, restoring kind of its military to its. I mean, admittedly, I think its military has ha, has proven to be weaker than Western analysts expected, but you know, prevent it from restoring it to its it, it, its pre-invasion levels. So I think that that is going to be a, a tension, and then I mean there is also obviously going to be a tension which which relates to this question of you know we are going into a global cost of living crisis and the more sanctions you keep in place on Russia at the margins that is going to have an effect on global energy prices and the like you know when this war is over will this desire to get off russian gas still be that i mean you know i think one of the lessons that everyone should take from this conflict which applies to china as well as russia but you know you should reduce your dependence on autocratic regimes because they are they are not uh, stable partners to do business with Dr. Clarkson, James mentions in his piece that the most difficult question is what to do about Crimea. How do you see the situation with Crimea in, in the context of the negotiations? I think there's a difference here between what the Ukrainian government wants. And so there's a bullish rhetoric, but I think the Ukrainian government below the surface is entirely realistic about the risks surrounding Crimea. So I don't think if, if, if the Russians are on the back foot and then it enters a negotiation process, I don't think it would be that difficult for EU or UK or US to say to the Ukrainians, OK, let's just see if we can massage the settlement. A realistic war goal really for the Ukrainians is to go back to the lines of February 24, 23. And I think Zelensky has also at times said this. People really need to look at what people in Bankova, that's the Ukrainian center of power. Uh, the street where the Ukraine center of power is, it's their Downing Street, it, what Bankova is saying, right? There's too much, like, the, the, what people take out an FT interview or a Kuleba statement. There's a lot much more subtle. I mean, these are professional people that deserve also a little bit of respect, I think, in a lot of European and Anglosphere commentary about their professionalism, and they know exactly what the score is. The problem is more one of battlefield dynamics, like, because we've all become so convinced that the Russians are this endless steam low roller. Now we have all this commentary that the Russians, of course, the Russians can do an endless war of attrition. Well... You know, there was all this commentary a few weeks ago about how they would uh, they would take Kiev. We need to have both scenario planning for two scenarios: the scenario where of negotiations or stalemate, or Russia's holding on. We also need a plan B for if Russia collapses in militarily, which is not is less unthinkable than it was in a few weeks. And that's where things become more risky because you can end up with a battlefield dynamics where suddenly the Ukrainians have a brigade in Henichevsk, which is off the off the Crimean border, and you know you have field commanders and you have chaos. You need to be sure that Kiev has the grip and, and has communicated to its field commanders that if you get there, you do not move without our permission. And that's what worries me a little bit more is that actually we, we think this is a controlled process. War is, a, is an uncontrollable process sometimes. And so my concern is more about what happens on the battlefield than what Kiev's war aims are. Kiev's war aims at the leadership level... I think are pretty rational. The EU has a lot of leverage. Remember, the core leverage towards Ukraine is Ukraine's EU aspirations. So that actually gives Berlin and France some leverage in terms of saying, look, guys, you know, slow, slow, slow down a bit, however much the UK and US might be supportive in some ways. But the, 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 my concern is more about what happens in the battlefield if the Russians, and they are thinly spread, collapse at some point, and the distance between Kherson City, if they take Kherson City, and then, then bridging the Dnieper, which would be difficult, but not impossible, via the estuary, and then landing with Ukrainian troops suddenly with the Russians having no cover for Crimea itself. That's a scenario that's also worth considering because that's the one where all the risks open up of, you know, somebody on the ground saying, oh, you know what, you know, Artemis, Artemis you know, Armyansk is just across there. Why don't we go for it? I mean, that's where we'd have to be really sharply there to ensure that what we, an uncontrollable battlefield dynamic goes back into a controlled di diplomatic process. 
And James, just finally, you mentioned in your piece that the Foreign Office now has a negotiations unit. What role would the UK be expecting to play if negotiations were to start? So I think that I think the UK view is that you know that they would wish to provide support to the Ukrainians. Obviously, the G7 countries are going to have a major role in these negotiations because one of the big things the Russians will want is the lifting of sanctions. And so you're going to you're going to have an interplay between the Russia-Ukraine negotiations and then what happens to all of these G7 imposed sanctions on Russia. I think there is also a tension which is that I mean, there is a view in in uh, London and Washington that you know that the Ukrainians have indicated to both of them that they, they basically want the UK and the US in the room. They feel that Minsk II, which the French and the Germans took the lead on, you know, that the, the implementation of that was too stacked towards the Russians. And so I mean, I think you'll see that role. Then I think the big question is this idea of what happens to Ukraine's military after the war. I mean, this is this is one of the things that is, is Everyone has kind of slightly forgotten about this because it, it took place days before the invasion. But there's a very important document signed between the UK government, the Polish government and the Ukrainian government. And what that is essentially about is a commitment to carry on training and equipping the Ukrainian military after the war for the foreseeable future. And the significance of that is I, don't, I think realistically Ukraine is not going to join NATO. So the best kind of security guarantee that Ukraine can have is a military that the Russians would know that they could not defeat by conventional means. And that would be the best guarantor of the territorial integrity of the future Ukrainian state. And we're now joined by The Spectator's Russia correspondent, uh, Matthews, to talk about NATO expansion and what power Erdogan has in the admissions process. Owen, for this week's magazine, you write about Erdogan's apparent opposition to Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Is he serious about this or is he bluffing? Well, my diplomatic sources and journalistic sources in Harris and Ankara seem to believe that it's a big bluff and that uh, it's a bargaining position. We'll never know with Erdogan. Erdogan is rather like his uh, Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, very unpredictable. And he's been in power for 20 years. One thing we do know from his 20 years in power is that Erdogan is fantastically good at bargaining. And this situation reminds me very strongly, for instance, of the hardball that Erdogan played with migrants in 2015, where he extracted maximum concessions from the European Union in exchange for stopping the flows of migrants. Of course, stopping flows of migrants was very strongly in Erdogan's interest in 2015, but he was just playing diplomatic hardball. And I think it's rather a similar situation today, is that he... Turkey has actually historically been very strongly in favour of NATO expansion. They were very strongly strong backers of uh, the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe. The only thing that would stop Erdogan from assenting to uh, Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO would be strong pressure from the Russians, because for various reasons, particularly because economic, uh, he, Turkey is dependent on Russian gas, its economy is dependent on Russian tourism and exports of food to Russia. If the Russians had chosen to play to pressure Erdogan, then he would be in a different, more difficult place than he is today. As it happens, and very surprisingly, Putin has suddenly turned and reversed his earlier strong opposition and is now pretending that he doesn't care and it's not a big deal. So it's not about pressure from Russia. It's really, as far as I can see, and my sources tell me that Erdogan is just bargaining and he's trying to get the maximum concessions uh, from NATO and from the Europeans in order to get to yes. 
So, Oban, you mentioned Putin's climb down there when it comes to Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Can you explain uh, why he has climbed down? Is it just because he he realize, he thinks that Sweden and Finland joining is inevitable now? The simplest explanation seems to be that he cannot oppose it. The only card that Russia really had to play and the only thing, something close to an ally or a friend, although one has to qualify that very strongly now, but, um, is Erdogan. In other words, Erdogan is the only Western leader not to have made Putin a personal enemy. He has condemned the invasion, by the way, and he also has a relationship with the Ukrainians. And uh, as we know, certainly at the beginning phase of the war, it was Turkish drones that uh, made an enormous difference on the battlefield. So Erdogan is not really a Putin ally, but he's kind of the closest thing to a bridge between Putin and the West and NATO that Putin has. Turkey was a card that Putin could have played. But I think the calculation on the Russian side was that the Putin-Erdogan relationship is a rather fragile one. And it's actually broken down several times in the past, particularly between 2016 and 2021. There have been like various spats and clashes over Syria, specifically between Russian planes and Turkish troops. And the Turks, in fact, shot down a Russian plane, uh, which they alleged that infringed on Turkish airspace in uh, 2021. Anyway, so the, 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 the point is that Putin, I think, has made a calculation that he needs Erdogan more than he needs to stop Finland and Sweden from stopping NATO. Because, in fact, there's also not very much that Putin can offer in positive terms to Erdogan. The only thing he can do is threaten Erdogan in the same way that he's threatened, that Gazprom has already threatened and attempted to bully the Poles and the Bulgarians by cutting off their gas. I think he's decided that he doesn't want to play that kind of hardball with Erdogan. He needs Erdogan. So therefore, he has no choice. And it's a very significant concession. It's a real sign of weakness on Putin's part, is that suddenly the only thing that he has left to do is to pretend that it's not a big deal because he can't do nothing to stop it. Because, in fact, it is a very big deal. I mean, the NATO-Russian border had hitherto been rather negligible. It's a little tiny bit of land in, uh, on the north border between Norway and, and Russia. And now it's over 1,000 kilometres. And, and how likely do you think it is that Finland and Sweden and other NATO members will give Erdogan what he, what he wants? I think it's pretty likely. I mean, there's some things that Erdogan wants that, he's not, that he can't possibly get. For instance, he's trying to extradite 33 members of the, uh, the PKK, a Kurdish uh, independence party and terrorist organisation, as, uh, as designated by both Washington and Ankara, by the way, and some uh, activists from a religious organisation led by a cleric in exile, Turkish cleric called Fethullah Gulen, who Erdogan is convinced was behind the... 2016 coup attempt in Istanbul and Ankara against his uh, against Erdogan. So he he wants those now Swedish citizens who are exiles and asylum seekers in Sweden to be extradited to face Turkish justice. Huge in, uh, inverted commas. That's obviously never going to happen. The Swedes will never hand over their citizens to a Turkish court. However, I think they're going to there's going to be various fudges and workarounds. I think it's not going to be very easy. I think Erdogan knows that he has the the NATO over over a barrel, and I think he's going to this he, he's he's going to extract as much as possible as he, as he possibly can. The Americans too have annoyed Erdogan. They've been supporting the Kurds. They've refused to sell Turkey uh, advanced uh, fighter jets. They've 
lifted an embargo on on trade for, for independent uh, Kurdish self-governing provinces in Syria. All those things are very annoying to Erdogan. Uh, he's also annoyed that Joe Biden has ignored him because, in fact, just like Putin, Erdogan and Putin are rather similar politicians. They're both extremely egotistical and they're very, very conscious of slights. And one of the things that Erdogan has publicly complained about is Joe Biden doesn't talk to me. So a little bit of FaceTime with Biden, will, I think, will go a long way. But eventually, I think that there will be some kind of compromise made and price will be paid. And finally, Owen, uh, you mentioned the fragility of the relationship between Putin and Erdogan and how actually this whole debacle, I suppose, has exposed Putin's weaknesses. Could it not be argued then that Erdogan has, whether intentionally or not, actually strengthened the West position by exposing that P Putin's weakness over Finland and uh, Sweden joining NATO? That's true. Right up until 2021, it was Putin that had the upper hand because, in fact, Erdogan needed Russian gas, Russian tourism and Russian export markets more than, 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 than Putin needed Erdogan. I mean, Erdogan didn't really need, need Putin for anything except uh, sort of diplomatic support and that kind of thing. And a sort of another front in his sort of anti-Western alliance that Putin was trying to put together. I mean, they, now what's happened is that uh, even people who were friends or, um, for instance, the heads of various uh, former Soviet states, particularly Kazakhstan, people who Putin had considered to be you know, allies have sort of fallen away. And Erdogan, who Putin had formerly sort of dominated and bullied and played hardball with, is more or less the last man standing. So yes, most certainly. I mean, the, 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 the bottom line is to Putin's surprise and horror, I think, he didn't anticipate the extent to which the world would turn against him. And famously in the UN, right in the second week of the war, the General Assembly vote uh, voted overwhelmingly to condemn the war. And the only countries that actually backed Putin were Eritrea, North Korea, Syria and Belarus. So if those are your allies, then you have a serious problem. <laughs> well, Owen, thank you very much for joining. And finally, Michael Simmons writes in The Spectator about his love of bowls, the sport, not the tableware. He joins us now, along with Andrew Gibson, who is on the committee of the Bowls Green in Streatham. Michael, in your Spectator piece this week, you write about being the youngest uh, member of your bowls club by quite a number of years. So how, how did you get into the sport? So I got into it because um, I was kind of, when I was about 13, 14, I was trying out a variety of, you know, different sports, like, like everyone does rugby, football, cricket, basically rubbish at all of them. And a few of my friends at the time, when the club did have junior members, were going along kind of after school on Fridays to like play bowls. And they said, well, you know, you're rubbish at everything else. Why don't you come along and try this? And I, I went along, loved it, became sort of semi good at it. And long after my friends, you know, disappeared off to better pastimes for them, I kind of stayed on and it hence ended up being the, the one youngster left in the club. And Andrew, you're on the committee of your bowls club in well, South London. I Indeed. Is that yes. Would the sight of young Michael turning up at your club be a bit of a shock? No, no, we'd be quite excited. Uh, I mean, <laughs> as, uh, as, as many new members as possible. So we're a public authority funded bowls club, of which uh, they tend to outnumber the private clubs in South London. And it's a matter of survival. So I, I live in the great, great London borough of Lambeth, but the bowls club is just across the border in Croydon. 
and Croydon's gone bankrupt and is looking to make cuts as uh, where it possibly can. So we're under threat. So the only way we can fight against that is by recruitment, getting as many people in as possible. And we've, we've increased our numbers by about 25% in the last four weeks. Well, here's your chance to recruit more people. What, what is it about bowls that's so attractive? Uh, the fact that it is, it, it is seemingly on the surface a very simple game. You roll a ball and you try and get it as close as possible to another ball. It's quite easy. When you start doing it, you realise that it's actually rather more complex than that. It's a bit like it's a bit like a snooker or something like that. You've got to, you've got to spend a lot of time doing it to get any good. So it's the fact that it's an easy. You, you, there's no range rules and you know complex things that you have to understand you just have to get the ball nearest the other ball but it takes quite a lot of skill to do that and michael in his piece says that the the english bowls is actually a little bit more complicated perhaps to, to master than french bowls do you do you agree with with that Yes, I mean, uh, uh, and you know, we don't allow smoking, which I think when <laughs> I mean, I was in I was in France yesterday, and uh, you know that you you have to smoke a lot of cigarettes as you sort of you know hurl the ball. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it it is more complicated, it's more difficult, and you need a particular place to play it that is well kept. And Michael, I think bowls has the reputation as being quite a perhaps laid back activity. But you say in your piece that actually there is a fierce competitive side to that. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about? So everyone's kind of perception of bowls, I think, is like it's the, a sedate pastime. You know, you see more elderly people, you know, in greys and whites kind of re- relaxing on the green. But if you get involved in some of the more competitive side, there can actually be kind of quite heated moments. And believe it or not, in my time playing bowls, I have seen it turn violent <laughs> on uh, one or two very odd occasions. And I should say that is a complete rarity. Bowls is like such a welcoming and friendly sport. But like anything, people get super competitive and there there is that competitive side of bowls just as there is in any other sport. Yeah, there are there are a number of leagues that we that we're uh, uh, members of, and there's a whole t- timetable of matches that run through the through the season. And I, I think I'd been three times before I was put on the team. We were that low on numbers to start with, and what I found was that when we were playing competitively, I was getting hints on, from the other team on how better to do it. So it is it is genuinely you're right. People do, can get heated, perhaps not so yeah, much in do, South London. Yeah, doesn't happen. It doesn't happen regularly. Maybe it, just in Scotland. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> in, in South London we're a little bit more civilized about it. Um, but but uh, the other team were quite handy, uh, quite generous with their handy hints and tips mm. on how to do it. And Michael, you say in your piece that one of the many reasons to join a bowl club is the political power that it it might bring if you're on the committee. Can you talk, talk us through that? So I would say in the club I'm a member of, I won't generalise for other clubs, but certainly in my club, there's kind of two types of people getting enjoyment out of their club membership. Most people, it's out of the socialising and obviously playing the bowls. But then all these clubs are kind of run and maintained by um, volunteer committees. And you have a mix of people on committees who, you know, they're they're doing their bit for the club. And, and that is the vast majority of people. But I think you, you can also get people who this is a good opportunity to wield some power in life. So an example at my club that happens every year is there's always a fight between we have a, um, a subsidised bar in our clubhouse. And there's always a kind of fight between the wider membership who are like, you know, keep the keep the booze as cheap as possible and the kind of bar convener who will be like, oh, we need to keep the profitability up and sort of wield power. And the way that you wield power is essentially, in most clubs, 
basically nobody really wants to be on the committee, so it's always hard to find committee members. But that gives them so much power because if somebody complains about the, uh, the way a certain office bearer is carrying out their role, the response will be, well, do you want to take over? <laughs> and invariably nobody does, and so hence w- where you can wield your power. Andrew, you're on the committee of your club. Do you rule with an iron fist? No, again, <laughs> I wasn't quick enough to sort of look the other way and, uh, and ended up being co-opted. As you're saying, the, 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 the best defence is to say, well, you, you could be the best, <laughs> you could be the captain, you could be the fixtures person, you could be the lawn committee. So yes, people do tend to try and avoid. I mean, I, I go to play the game. And, and what I quite like about it is I haven't the faintest clue what the background is of most of the people mm. I play with. And I'm not that interested. I mean, the other thing I do is Latin American dancing, and I've been dancing with people for 15 years. I haven't the faintest clue what they do for a living or what they think about things. I'm there to do the dancing. And it's similarly with bowls with me. You know, it's, it, there is a big mixture. We've got extremely rich people, and we've got people cheek by jowl who, who live in local council flats, and it makes not the slightest bit of difference, really. Michael, that's the point that you make at the end of your piece. You talk a little bit about who you've played against, who who have you played against. Yeah, so um, I would agree agree completely that you you meet such a huge range of people and I have met a member of the House of Lords on the Bowling Green. I've met special advisors uh, that work in Downing Street and on the other end I've um, met like ex-convicts who now spend their freedom playing bowls. So it is just such a range and that, that's kind of the beauty of bowls is that it's, it's really your background is like totally irrelevant once you get on the green um, and as long as everyone sort of adheres to like kind of basic etiquette standards it's all agreed throughout everyone then everyone just gets on and plays together and that's I think why I personally love bowls because it's just such a mix of people. Um, and Andrew, just for anyone who's listening, who's thinking of they might like to join a bowls club, what, what's your advice? How do they go about doing it? Well, I mean, just turn up at your local bowls club where you will be welcomed. I, I'm, I'm making a huge generalisation there, but certainly if you turned up now, you would be. And you would be within a few minutes being, being given a ball to roll down and, and, and advice on how to do it. There is, on the weekend of the 28th, 29th, a National Bowls Weekend where all bowls clubs that have signed up, and I think it's, I don't know about Scotland, but certainly in England, everyone signed up to. So that's a complete open day that people have advertised, and there'll be cakes and tea, and there'll be you know other other attractions there as well, just to get people to. Because once people have done it, they tend to like to like it because of the lack of of rules and 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 arcane things that you have to understand. It's an easy one to start with. Well, Michael and Andrew, thank you very much indeed for joining us. As ever, if you've liked what we've talked about, you can read all the pieces in this week's magazine. Just pick up a copy. Or if you'd like to subscribe to the magazine, you can go to subscribe.spectator.co.uk. Thank you and see you next week.